This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 29, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Svatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today, we have... P.T. Weinberg from Charles Gate Realty Group. Mike DeMella, Charles Gate Realty Group. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. I feel like we always say that, awesome, thanks for joining yeah. us, right? Like, awesome. It's just like a tick at this point. Yeah. What do you want us to say? I don't know. It's a very exciting intro. Yeah. <laughs> we need some music. We got to work on that. So let's talk about Halloween. It's this weekend. What do you guys, you guys have costumes lined up? Is it this weekend? Up? Yeah. What day is it? Is it fall on the weekend? No, it's, uh, no, it's Thursday. Thursday. Oh, it's, it's next Thursday. Thursday. Oh, yeah. next Thursday. Mike, your party yeah. Saturday, though. I, my, our party is Saturday. Coming? Yeah, I'm coming. Perfect. I, got <laughs> my, so, I didn't yeah. get the invite. I mean, <laughs> Business partners for what 16 you, years. What are you going yeah. as, Mark? So Jesse and I are doing um, criminals. It's like pinstripes prisoners, really. Criminals. Yeah. Perfect. I should stop there. <laughs> Don't they wear orange now, though? That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> Damn it, I need a new costume. It's like a 30, 30s era. Yeah, yeah, era. yeah. Like Alcatraz, Alcatraz era. Yeah. Alcatraz, yeah. All right, I'm on board right. with that. So, wait, we still don't know what so you guys are, are dressing up yeah, as. I, yeah, you know, I got, got to get on that. Yeah. Uh, last year, I had to be uh, Maui from Moana with my uh, now three-year-old daughter. Oh, that's cute. So that was that was good. Although I don't quite have the figure to pull off the, <laughs> the Maui costume. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, my wife Erin doesn't allow me to reveal our costume until the day of the party. Oh, so. nice out. Yeah. Secret. Nice out. Uh, but what's good is that this pod won't air until after Halloween, uh, so we don't have to worry about crashing, you know, all 2,000 listeners just flooding your house. So. You um, let's get right to it. 14, 14 door customers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Mike PT, tell us a little bit about um, how Charles Gate got started and a uh, little sense of your numbers and what you guys have been up to. Yeah, so we founded in uh, 2003 and uh, we actually worked together when uh, I was at Boston College and Mike was at uh, BU. And uh, we started off as many real estate professionals in the city of Boston out in the uh, trenches of the Alston, Brighton, Brookline, uh, you know, rental market. Uh, great place to cut your teeth. And then we decided if we're going to stay in this, let's uh, go down to, you know, one of the more prestigious parts of town and opened up in Back Bay. And here we are 16 years later and, you know, grown to about uh, 60 people. And our business is, you know, kind of has three main tranches, just general brokerage, sales and leasing property management, both condominiums and um, income properties. And then we do a lot of new development, consulting, marketing, you know, both condominium sales, lease ups, and, and then the end property management. So that's, that's kind of Charles Gate in a nutshell. As far as the development side, are you intimately, are you the actual developer or are you consulting for, like, what is your kind of that division look like? No, we're we're consulting with developers. So you know, we're doing investment sales on the on the on the acquisition end potentially, but we're consulting with uh, projects everywhere from sort of pre entitlement all the way through entitlements to um, design development and all the way through to the end um, either either lease up or sell out of condos or and uh, property management beyond that. Nice. So is it tough being a boutique brokerage out in the city? I feel like a lot of them are being sort of gobbled up by some of the larger national players. How do you guys kind of differentiate yourself and what are your plans going forward? Yeah. Uh, as good you, question, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no. a lot. <laughs> it's a good question, though. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry, not just here in Boston, but throughout the country. You know, you've seen a lot of capital flowing into the into the real estate uh, market in terms of the services and brokerages and a number of other things. But I think the, the interesting thing for us at this point is as more consolidation happens, there's more of a differentiator being a boutique operation. And also, like PT said, the, the services that we're offering extend beyond brokerage for sure. And that gives us an opportunity to do that in, in, in a way that's sort of unique in, in the market as we see it. 
Yeah, I mean, real estate's just inherently a very micro-local business, right? And it's um, something that, you know, we've been able to establish the relationships we have and we're on-site broker owners, which is a rarity. A lot of the bigger companies that you mentioned don't really have that. And that's another differentiator for us is, you know, our doors are always open to our agents. And, um, you know, I feel we bring, you know, almost 40 years of collective experience to the table to, to, you know, help other people grow as well as, you know, us individually and as a company. I feel like, and I'm not sure this is true, but it's my sense, is that uh, a lot of the larger brokerages underinvest in development uh, sales. So a real estate agent comes and knocks on broker's door and says, I have 50 units lined up. And it's really like, okay, great, good luck. Like, whereas I think that's such a huge opportunity for the business that like, I can't stand when that agent comes back and says, oh, and here's a fee for the telephone bill to to my trailer out there and a fee for building the website. And this firm that I hired uh, to do your branding and logo. It's like, hey, you're getting at least two and a half percent on every deal. Why don't you step to the table? And I feel that you guys do a really good job of of being all encompassing in that way. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of, a couple of things there. One is brokers don't invest in it generally because they can't. I mean, the agents that are bringing in the business are on such a high split. There's not a ton of margin left for the brokers to invest in in those types of things here you're talking about. So to do the things like some of the things that we're doing in-house, it doesn't make sense for a lot of brokerages to do that because they just it's not profitable for them. And most brokerages frankly are in the are in the business of attracting agents and that's their business model, not working and in, in doing, you know, what is is everything that can be done for the client whether it's a developer or even just a general home buyer or a seller. That's not their business in general. Primarily they're in the sort of agent recruiting business. That's how brokerages make their money. That's interesting. Yeah. And so it, how do you guys but, make your money? So well, yeah. So we, <laughs> our operation is is not again not just a brokerage operation. Right. That's part of the difference. And we have invested in the sort of new development infrastructure. We have develop, uh, invested in the property management infrastructure. So we're making money across the entire um, the spectrum of those services. Is how we do it. We don't. We're not a sort of recruiting machine. We've really never even recruited at all in, t- in terms of agents. We bring in agents who are good agents that work with us. You know, work on our team, work on on projects, and and we have sort of a business model to sustain that. That's how we're. That's how we're built. And I think inherently they're really two different businesses. And although there's some crossover in some of the core competencies, general brokerage, which you know, to your point, those brokerages are set up for is very different than new development marketing. And we identified that early on and we created a, you know, unique platform to, um, that recognizes those differences. And then obviously try to optimize the the performance on, you know, which, whichever respective area we're in. And, and that's where I think there is a shortfall on some of the the bigger box shops that just yeah. don't, they're not as nimble and they're not able to, to understand that and do things differently for a 50 unit project versus whatever they think sells a, a, a single yeah. house. They're more, they're more typically focused on the, a resale yeah. of a, of a yeah. condo or a yeah. yeah. How would you say your split, your sales are split between new development and or lease ups and traditional just resale? Someone wants to sell my house. Yeah, it can vary quite a bit sort of quarter to quarter and even year to year because of the sort of the cycle of new developments tends to be a whole lot longer. I mean, we're, we're working on projects, as you guys know, for two, three, four, five years in some cases. And so those all sort of usually come to uh, fruition at closing with the project and, and they all sort of hit maybe in one quarter or sort of half a year. So it does vary, but it's about 50-50 over the, over the, uh, in, in general. Okay, interesting. So take us to the Lancaster. This is kind of going back to your roots, right? A little bit Austin Brighton. Yeah. You pushed some record sales numbers there. It's a 40-unit building, and you sort of followed a pretty innovative sales process. Tell us a little bit about that. 
that was, you know, really an, an interesting project in that there hadn't been a new construction ground up condominium building of any size in Austin Brighton in almost a decade, right? So 2008 had been the, the, the previous one. And then when this came on, you know, it was really kind of a, a totally new frontier. And so we kind of had to triangulate data of, you know, resale stock basically. And okay, where did that stack up from a cost standpoint and how much could we push the upper end of that given that we were bringing a product to market that no one had seen in, in quite some time. And the Lancaster really got the ball rolling for what is now one of the you know most active submarkets in the city from a development standpoint. And um, you know, I think uh, our, our marketing that we were alluding to that's specific to our new development platform. And then obviously the the sales execution was something um, that you know, we're really proud of, and and it did kind of set the bar out there. And then we've continued to raise it with some of the the projects that have come after that. But you guys sort of held sales for a while, right? Like you built buyer lists and interest, and then you sort of opened a floodgate and you used almost a lottery system, if I'm not mistaken. Is yeah. this con- is this proprietary? Uh, no, no, no. It's a, no, it's a, it's a it's a nice observation. Uh, you know, not not exactly perfect, but yeah, for sure. What we do, and we still do this in a lot of projects, is we do a lot of initial demand generation marketing, highly a lot of digital marketing and a lot of analytics based digital marketing to find and refine our target target audience, and sort of build a build a wide funnel to start, and then we sort of nurture this buyer pool or potential buyer pool over time, even before we launch sales, in order to sort of get everyone, you know, as many people as possible ready to buy and ready, um, sort of ready to jump in once we launch sales. And so that's a key component of our marketing to this day on most projects. Um, and so on that particular project, once we once we started sales, we had a pool of hundreds of buyers for 55 units who came in and just were, you know, sort of storming the gate to buy units for sure. It was really an incredible process. And we, and, you know, beyond that, we take that process and, and drive a sort of consistent sales process too in terms of setting appointments so that they're um, so you're continuing to sort of nurture and create and increase that demand effect throughout the sales cycle. It's almost like direct to buyer marketing and we're as developers mostly dealing with direct to seller marketing to generate leads. So similar. Do you do anything by the mail? Like USPS, or is it all digital? I'm aware of USPS. <laughs> <laughs> snail snail mail. snail mail. We do some direct mail for sure. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's not a big component of our of our marketing to buyers because it's frankly it's harder to target buyers specifically that way but it is something that we is a tool in the toolbox so to speak i would imagine it's hard to find lists that would include you know people renting because that's not really publicly available data not like this is a person who owns a property so i can mail to them directly so uh yeah kudos finding these people and generating the the interest thank you so let's talk a little bit about pre-construction sales so i feel that from a developer, a developer standpoint, obviously, any developer wants to sell their stuff pre-construction. Is it true that things have started to shift a little bit in the last couple of years where buyers are looking for a more finished product? You know, I feel two to three years ago, you know, you could sell out a building before it was finished. And now, based on how much development has gone on and how much maybe subpar development has gone on, people are kind of skeptical of of buying pre-construction these days. Yeah. I mean, I think generally speaking, that's pretty much on point. The influx of competition certainly has made it, you know, more of a challenge to sell things earlier in construction. And then, you know, you also have kind of the logistical constraints that come with selling while buildings are under construction, right? And depending on the size of the project, I mean, you know, if you're a 20 to 
hundred unit project, say plus or minus, you know, depending on what submarket you're in, what price point you're at, you have budgetary constraints from a marketing standpoint as to, you know, you might not have 10 million bucks to spend on a sales center like, you know, the St. Regis or, you know, something along those lines, right? So you kind of have to really decipher project to project what's going to be the the best way to to run your sales program. So whether that's meeting offsite with people, whether that's trying to expedite one unit as a finished model, but you definitely in this current climate need to recalibrate expectations about the percentage sold by the time the building opens, comparatively speaking to where we were 18 to 24 months ago. Well, let's talk about a smaller, our smaller building. So like a nine units or less. Mm-hmm. You know, would you would you recommend to a developer to wait till the building is completely finished before listing, or would you recommend to start trying to pre-sell maybe one or two units? Generally, for the smaller projects, it it typically behooves you to wait for a more finished product. I mean, so so and that's gonna that's gonna help you maximize the sales price. Frankly, when people can go in and touch and feel the product and see the quality themselves, they're willing to sort of pay up for it in more in more cases than not. Especially as PC, PT said, if there's not the budget to do a really extensive sort of sales materials and collaterals and samples and finishes and model unit, when you don't have the opportunity to do that, it's generally better to wait a little bit longer till you have a, a, a something a unit finished on site to do that in order to just sort of maximize your sell sell out and uh, and increase the velocity of sales. Nice. Generally, I mean, you know, I, I hate to make blanket statements always like that too, but generally speaking, and you yeah. don't have a lot of absorption with say five or 10 or, or units or so either. So quick question. Do print ads uh, like in Boston homes, do they work or is that just something that sellers see and it makes them feel good that their agents out there hustling? So print ads work. They are just dramatically overpriced for how well or not so well they work, frankly. Yeah. I mean, Print ads get noted. We've run tests on them over the years too, and really try to. Our approach to marketing is really analytics based, and and sort of we measure and test everything we do. And print ads are just dramatically more expensive than any other type of marketing we're doing. And and yes, there is some value to say, oh, look at you know, Mister Seller, Mrs. Seller, look at your home in the yeah. in the newspaper. But yeah. that's generally not going to increase the value of the home or the sale price of the home or or, or drive it to sell. The latest issue of Who's Who in Boston. Agent Magazine came out recently, and I just feel uh, like my grandma, Nat, God bless her, she was a poet, and she was published in the Who's Who of Boston Poets, and it made her feel really good. But when I asked her, I said, Annette, what, what did you pay for that book? It was something like 500 bucks, and we, my whole family got a little laugh. She felt like a published poet, but uh, is that akin to the Who's Who publication in our city here? Can I get the question? How long, <laughs> that, how long has that been being published? How long has it gone? I, I don't know. I know a few years, anyways. I mean, you know, look, there's some good agents in there. Not, there, not oh, gonna, yeah. you know, like not gonna knock it. It's just like any other form of marketing and advertising. You have to decide if the ROI is worth it for you and who it's targeting and what it costs to do, and you make those decisions. And you know, I, I think. At the end of the day, if you looked at the statistics of, you know, production in the city of Boston, you're going to see a ton of top producing agents on that list that are not in that publication. And, and again, it's your prerogative to, to decide to, to do that or not do that. But, you know, it's, uh, oh, it's the world answer. we're in. I, 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 yeah. It is a, a little bit of a microcosm of, uh, and who's who is not the only one. There are other publications and, you know, websites out there who are trying to sort of capitalize on agents out there, frankly, to sort of take money in the pocket out of the agent's pocket for no reason whatsoever in a lot of cases. And again, I don't want to pick out one like who's who or any other one in particular, 
But it's just, you know, there's a lot of money being spent on, you know, quote unquote marketing that is really not the type of targeted marketing that makes sense for most agents. And it's, it's a challenge, though, because it looks nice. It feels yeah. nice. It, it It's, you know, and again, not to knock anyone who participates in that at all, but uh, it's just, it's just, it's aggravating to me in, in, in many cases where all these things trying to pop up and just sort of like, you know, brand themselves as this special, you know, award-winning thingamajig yeah. that well, who does it really even get, get sent? Who, gets, who does it get sent to? Well, other agents. agents. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. how does that do anything? I for just you? think well, there should be a disclosure required. Like you must put a footnote that says this cost X number of dollars, and it's actually the same in the medical profession. You go into your pediatrician's office or orthopedist, and it says like Massachusetts top bone uh, sports med doctor. You just paid a lot for that plaque. I promise it's not much different than this, but I, th I think your point's well taken that there's a, you know, a lot of businesses that are there just, just to do that. Now, should we talk well, about the other elements? Let's, let's talk about the other ones. So <laughs> as developers, we're seeing margins getting squeezed both because of the higher cost of acquisition, higher cost of development, whether or not the market is changing at all. As real estate agents and, and professionals, are you seeing other companies like Redfin and Zillow with their pre-construction? Are you seeing any competition or are you seeing margins, you know, potentially being squeezed there because of that? Do you see any competition from other larger companies, maybe call them Compass. <laughs> What's the landscape like? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've, you've got sort of three different models you just described, right? So you've got, you know, the, the Zillows of the world, which is essentially an advertising platform as far as we're concerned. I mean, certainly they're also doing the, getting into the iBuying world and some other things like that now, not so much around here yet, but sure, sure that will be to come. Are you talking about with the iBuying, like them doing, because basically becoming developers themselves? Essentially, yeah. Yeah, well, they're and, and, not doing very well. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, they're, but they're well capitalized, obviously, and, you know, we'll see how they can sort of work that model. We consider Zillow main, mainly an advertising platform for us. Like, just as, you know, you talk about putting an ad in a newspaper, or you can put an ad on Zillow, you can, you know, run Google pay-per-click ads, you can do social ads. That's just one sort of tactic that we certainly use. Uh, you know, frankly, it gets good traffic and can lead to some good results um, for us as well. So Redfin is a brokerage, right? You know, so uh, obviously a well-trafficked website. You know, we would say certainly they're competition in some regard. They generally charge a lower commission split. We typically argue, or not argue, we sell our clients on a higher level of service and we deliver higher level of results versus them. And we usually win those arguments. And, uh, you know, Compass, if you're going with that or any other other brokerage as well, it's really sort of way more sort of agent to agent competition than brand to brand competition. Every brokerage has some pros and cons and pluses and minus for agents that work for them and maybe even for clients. But generally speaking, Brokerages in the business of 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 hiring and having and recruiting agents, the agents are the ones that are delivering the service level, no matter what brokerage you work for. So we're competing more with agent to agent. So it hasn't really had a major impact on us one way or the other from that standpoint. Do you guys invest or develop on your own, any of your own stuff? We do on a small scale. Yeah, we don't do a lot. We we don't want to when we participate in deals sometimes with clients, but we don't like to be seen as like competing in the market. We're 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 service providers and we're you know, uh, uh, brokers in the market who are trying to find, to work with clients, find deals, advise them on deals. So we don't want to, we, we've generally taken the tack of not doing our own deals to not appear to have any sort of conflicts in, in, uh, uh, in the market. So I think the corollary to that um, Zillow and Redfin conversation is, is to discuss off-market uh, sales. I think that a lot of buyers are able to shop on their iPads and kind of peruse listings themselves versus you know, ages ago, having yellow pages of MLS listings at the broker's office. So there seems to be a more, let's say, prevalence in off-market advertising. 
and a way for agents to add value? Is that is that something that you found effective? And yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting conversation right now because uh, you know I was actually at a advisory board meeting this morning for this what's called top agent network, right? Which you have to qualify to join, and it's the top ten percent of the agents, and they're in thirty five different metropolitan areas, and it's been a really good source of of business, right? Because you know that pretty much everyone that's in that network is competent and has something to offer you for your listings or for your buyers. And uh, it, it's been a pretty good tool. And you know, I think the agents who've, who've uh, been able to, to join that in Boston have, have gotten good results. But there's a, a kind of macro level thing going on right now with the National Association of Realtors and various MLSs. And, you know, there, there's a real crackdown on this. And it's a big hot button right now as far as how much of this off-market type activity is going to be permissible moving forward and what those ramifications are for each local MLS on the, you know, regulations that they decide or decide to or not to adopt. What type of ramifications? I would add there, the idea of the sort of off-market, quote-unquote, or high pocket, pocket deals, or however, you want to, however you want to describe it, is a real sort of slippery slope. I, I can see certain circumstances where there's value added for a client, but there's also many, many circumstances where agents may do it just to try to double into deal, get close both sides of the deal. And it's a and and not at the benefit of the client. It's a real slippery slope there, and that's what a lot of the MLSs are worried about. That's that's what a lot of you know other realtors and, and agents around the country are worried about. And sort of the, those that's why there's a lot of sort of talk about different rules and regulations being put in place by MLS or other otherwise to uh, diminish this. Because uh, you know, frankly, right now there's been too many cases of that where agents, real estate agents, are not acting uh, at their client's best interest, and that's that's the big problem with it. Now, again, I, I think there's certainly th- some of the points PT made where, you know, if you have this sort of network with just sort of good top agents, you know, you're getting a sort of quality deal and it works out better for the for the, for the seller or buyer. Uh, great. But that's unfortunately not always the case. And at the end of the day, as Mike said, it's all about the consumer, right? You want to do what's best for the consumer. The issue I see is by going totally in one direction, unilaterally, you take out the situations where you may have people who have, you know, logistical constraints, privacy concerns, whatever these things may be, where right now the current rules enable you to get permission from a seller. And and again, it has to be explicit. It has to be transparent. And that's just, you know, good business practices, right? But, you know, you're not doing it to potentially try to hoard commission. You're doing it to accommodate someone's needs because maybe they're just not ready to go on market full bore, whatever the individual circumstances are. And again, as long as you're having candid conversations with your clients and you're you know, filling them in on what the pros and cons are of doing things different ways from a marketing standpoint. And then you come to a decision collectively. And and I think it can really work. So, um, but there is the other end of the spectrum, which is kind of what Mike was talking about, which is where the MLSs are having their major trepidations about allowing this type of stuff to go on at all. It's similar to when we're dealing from a developer standpoint, when we're dealing directly with seller, you know, sometimes I'll, we'll come out and say to them, Hey, listen, you know, you're going to get your best bang for your buck by going on MLS or going on the market or listing with an agent. But on, on, at other times, you know, we'll be talking to sellers and they'll say, you know, I don't want to go on MLS. I'm embarrassed to list my home. It's in such bad shape. I don't want anyone walking through it. I don't want anyone coming, you know, there's a lot of situations to your point that, that sellers don't want to be on the market. I'm willing to leave X on the table for something quick and clean with guys like you that, you know, they know can perform and, 
you know, make it easy. And, yeah. and so there's value yeah. in that. You know, that, that again is very situational. And that's why I have some issues with, you know, again, going completely in one direction over. Yeah. over and I can up. see the benefit as a developer oh, totally. as well. You know, the pre-sale, the off-market, you don't want to waste days on market. That's also a very valuable metric. Right. Yeah. And I also say that like the beauty of MLS and the market in general is that if you're not quite sure what the price is, it will tell you quickly. But if, if you have a strong indication of what value is and someone's offering you Y and you know that X is likely what it's to fetch and you feel good about that, then take Y and you don't need to let it see MLS. So there's that. I thought you were referring to the... Um the lawsuits, don't they want to open up MLS? They don't want it to be a closed network at all? I thought that was one of the legalities happening, litigation. I'm not sure the specific one you're, what you're referring to right, uh, right there, but- We'll probably uh, cut the, this the, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, certainly there's a lot of things that- I thought MLS itself was being challenged because it's a closed network, but it's so, all licensed professionals, so what are you supposed to do, right? Yeah, so and one of the things, when, when, whenever people say MLS, there's 800 and some odd MLSs right. throughout the country, so and they're all sort of mm. independent owned local business. Some are owned by realtor associations. Some are independently owned. So there's a whole which host. is an issue onto itself. Right? Well, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the challenge. The challenge is if I want to go and sell my own property, an FSBO for sale by owner, I can't list it on MLS and get the same exposure as an agent would. And there are, as my I understand it, there are challenges to certain MLS territories or MLSs that that is being brought against. But again, I don't know much more about that. Nothing has been concluded. So I, I, would, I was surprised you were talking about the other MLS side of things, the pocket side of things. <laughs> Just listening to what it. Mark's asking, you know? Yeah, Mike, <laughs> you, were the, uh, you were the head of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board. Do I have that? That, that is correct. Yeah, so Ooh. was this, what was your day-to-day like in that role? Settling disputes between realtors, talking about MLS rules? Like, how did that go? Yeah, so a lot of, a lot of things, sort of. So the Greater Boston Real Estate Board itself is actually made up of five divisions from both the residential real estate world, aka realtors, and also commercial boards. I'm sorry, commercial uh, agents, uh, building owners and managers, rental housing um, owners and managers. So there's a number of different um, um, divisions there. So certainly a part of that is things like advocacy when we're dealing with sort of whether it's uh, in 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 the city with city government, some of the you know whether it's just cause eviction, for instance, whether it's energy efficiency measures for buildings. We're dealing with the city and the state and a lot of those issues from, you know, very, very frequently. That's one of the main sort of parts of, of the job I would describe. it. But also there are, um, on, especially on the realtor side, there are there is a dispute re- resolution mechanism. That's necessarily, not necessarily the job of the um, the chairman of the board. But, <laughs> uh, but there is there are committees for that that handle dispute resolutions as it, as it relates to sort of the ethics, any ethics potential violations, things like that. That would seem entertaining. I might want to be on that board. You should join. Yeah. How much time is dedicated to updating the template forms, like standard offered to buy, standard lease leases, and uh, to be that honest with you, I, I, I actually <laughs> don't know the answer to that. Uh, you know, I think they're up, updated irregularly. You know, as needed. Um, with laws change, they'll be updated, but otherwise, probably not much. Do you think somebody should use those forms, or do you think they should go out and use their own attorney-approved forms? I've always like from a leasing standpoint. I've heard people say, oh, don't use the standard contract because it's flawed X, Y, and Z. Use something that you've had your attorney do. Any thoughts? Well, I'm, I know this is I'm not, I'm on the not a lawyer, <laughs> but uh, so, so you'd have to check with your own lawyer. But I can tell you what we do. We use the Greater Boston Real Estate Forms sort of most or part of the time. Then we also have other additions to it that are drafted by our attorneys. Well, let's talk a little bit about property management. So you have obviously you have a property management division as well. You're managing both condominium associations as well as 
just multifamily rental properties. Do you do any low income rental or property management as well? Yeah, right like now, Section Eight. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. now, we do a small portion of that. It's not a big part of our of our business. So we okay. don't we don't have a focus on sort of for affordable or low income housing. We certainly do have affordable units and buildings that we manage, though. Uh, oh. It's just not a not a big portion of our business. And what's your typical property management fee on the uh, rental side? On the multifamily side, it's generally between sort of three and five percent, depending if there's you know staffing on site or or otherwise. But three to in that kind of ballpark. We don't necessarily have a f- sort of fixed rate, though. It does vary based property to property, and we'll bid each each account out separately. And you'll do all over greater Boston or metro Boston? Yeah, all, all over the, the the Boston area. Sort of inside, I would describe it as sort of inside the, uh, like, 128 belt. Okay. Oh, wow. So you'll go kind of all the way out to, like, Newton and... Oh, yeah. Depends on the size and, and scope of the, of, the, of, the, of the property, but yeah. Sweet. How many units do you manage currently? We manage a few thousand. A few thousand. Is there any minimum if somebody wants to come to you? No, we manage no. everything from from one unit up to, you know, hundreds of units in a, in a property. Nice. Now, I've heard property management companies say that managing property, it's like customer service. No one ever calls you to say, thanks for doing a good job. <laughs> and I've heard other people describe it as it's blood money. So what do you look for in return? How else do you find the positives in this business? Uh, I mean, you know, it, look. They call it work for a reason, right? Every business is work. And, and you know, n- nothing's easy. So I'm not going to sit here and say that property management is disproportionately difficult to other businesses. It's just like any other business. I mean, you got to put in the work. More often than not, just comes down to communication and, and you know, having the right mechanisms in place to convey the messaging. And, and the relationships are really, they have to be a two-way street, right? I mean, people need to trust you and your expertise and you need to trust that they're going to actually listen to you and that they've hired you for said expertise. And, you know, as, as long as that foundation's in place, despite the fact that to your point, you know, the, the vast majority of the interaction on a management level is usually when there's some kind of fire to put out, that's just the way it is. And, um, you know, I think, again, our whole big component of our platform on property management has really just been all about transparency and that's in our fees and, and structure of how we how we operate. And that's the one thing that we saw saw before we really dove full bore into that business that, you know, candidly kind of pissed us off, which is uh, there's a lot of shady stuff going on with property management companies. And we just decided, hey, we're going to do this. We're just going to do it differently. And we're going to be very, very upfront about how we operate. And if you buy into that, great. Hopefully you hire us. And if you don't, that's fine. Go in another direction. But um, it's really enabled us to to build that business at a pretty good, pretty good clip of growth over the you know past decade. So let's talk a little about closing. I had a broker tell me once that one agent in her office was the closer and that particularly suited to, to close the deals. And I, I don't know what that means. Is that apocryphal uh, folklore? Am I being sold? It's one approach, I, yeah. I think. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit more of an old school approach than what we would recommend these days, frankly. What we try to do when sort of developing a sales program for new developments or otherwise is, is create sort of a real buying atmosphere that buyers, the prospects that walk in are comfortable making a decision. They see quality signals so they can get a sense that the project's a good project, you know, whether it's just the brochure they pick up or the graphics or, or whatever it might be or the model samples and, and among, a num, uh, you know, among a number of other things that we're doing. But like to, to pretend you're going to take someone in a room and close them is kind of silly, frankly. <laughs> yeah. That sounds car, car salesman-y. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I look, you know, them. what closing is in this business is just, it's, it's crossing the threshold of trust, right? People trust you. Then they say, 
all right, you know, again, they, they get all these quality signals. They, you know, you, you tell them everything about this, you know, we're just using a new development analogy, but you're telling them everything about this building. You're telling them everything about the finishes, you know, all you, you know, your closing consists of getting them to actually believe that what you're telling them is going to happen is going to happen. And they're, you know, and if they're comfortable with that, they're going to move forward. And if they're not, they're not. And, you know, this whole idea of, you know, Alec Baldwin style, right. Gary Glenn Ross, to <laughs> yeah. steal your line there, um, you know, is just not, it is, it's, as Mike said, it's passe, it's, it's done. I think people see through that and it's just all about kind of being, you know, as authentic as you can be and, you know, hoping that people, people, you know, agree with what you're, uh, what you're telling them. I'm glad I asked. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> One final question on my end is like the foreign buyers. We've heard a lot about people parking money because, for one reason or another, they don't care about returns. They just care about a strong market, and Boston's one of them. Basically, any other major metropolitan area in the country. Are you seeing a shift? Are you seeing? Do you have a pulse on foreign buyers and what they're doing, at least here? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's uh, certainly something that's a factor in the market. I, I mean, you know, you've got for a lot of various reasons, sort of geopolitical and otherwise, people, you know, foreign buyers moving money out of their country and sort of parking it and real estate in other, you know, in Boston or other cities and in other countries. So we certainly have seen that to some degree. It has sort of diminished a little bit. I mean, there's, you know, more than ever, there are regulations in terms of pulling money out of China, for one example. Um, so we're seeing some sort of that diminishing a little bit. That being said, there's still a huge appetite for real estate in in Boston and the, in the U.S. And frankly, if you look at the prices of Boston compared to some other international cities, it's a relative value, frankly, even though it feels expensive and it is expensive to us it can be a, a relative value to some of these other international cities. So that's that's why you've got a lot of various reasons, geopolitical market, that's still going to, should remain a, a fairly decent part of the market going forward. So segueing into where where do you see the Boston market now and, you know, in the next few years based on kind of your pulse of where we are? What's your magic eight ball say? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I ask this almost to every everybody we talk to, but... I just like to get everyone's opinion. What does everyone else say? Oh, I'll, well, I'll give you the if answer. If you listen to the podcast, the you would have known. <laughs> <The fun laughs> burn. <laughs> oh, man. I think my take uh, would be, uh, you know, I think I'm, uh, no, I think I am bullish on, on Boston in the long run. I mean, certainly our biggest challenge is affordability, right? So prices can't, you know, sort of appreciate forever, but we've got a systemic, like decades long undersupply of housing. So we need more housing. And that sort of keeps prices stable and, and or increasing over, over the short and long run. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason is you see this wide economic base in Boston that's only sort of growing and looking like it's continuing to grow in various sorts of industry from high tech to biotech, medical finance, sort of all the industries kind of really sort of booming along in Boston now. So that's the other factor. And the third factor really is just sort of demographically, people want to live in or closer to urban environments and Boston being one of them as well as sort of some some of these closer in urban sort of suburb environment, so to speak. So there's a, for all those reasons, I just don't see sort of any sort of decline on the, on the horizon in Boston. And I would just add a couple points to that, that there's also all those businesses that Mike mentioned, but there's just these foundational business, you know, foundational industries like education and medicine that just, you know, are, are pretty, pretty solid regardless of what the economy is doing. People are still getting sick and they're still going to school. So that, that drives us. And then as you guys know, firsthand, you know, the zoning is very complex. It's hard to get, you know, the amount, any real semblance of height and or density that would really move the supply needle. And you compound that with a you know, decades long backlog of uh, undersupply of housing. It's just, I don't see that 
that that that pendulum swinging in a way that would materially really uh, impact pricing negatively. On the contrary, what about the how you were saying that there's a it, stuff is expensive here, right? And do you feel that there's going to be an oversupply on the luxury, ultra luxury side of things versus the I, I would say first time home buyer type purchase, which is now what, like half a million dollars, $700,000, which is crazy to some people. But, you know, that million plus price point, do you feel that there's going to be an oversupply there or no? A million and a half. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could define it in a, in a number of different ways. It's a good question. And I, I think the first thing I'd say is affordability is, is our biggest challenge as a sort of a city and even a region, frankly. And, and while Boston is been doing and some of the other cities around have been doing a pretty good job building. There's so many cities and towns around the state and, and, and sort of the area that just are just, just you know, digging their heads in the sand, frankly, with zoning or otherwise that sort of aren't allowing enough housing to build or the types of housing that we need in terms of starter homes that aren't, you know, a million dollars or, or and things like that. So I think your question, though, is, as it relates to the different parts of the market, that's, I would say, will from time to time, there might be an over or under supply in one of those segments or another. But I would argue that's sort of outside the, of a long-term trend and what's happening in the, in the region as, as, as a whole. I mean, you might have a super high-end building that goes up that can't sell out because, frankly, there's not enough high-end buyers, you know, this year period. But over the next three, four, five years, I, I, don't, I don't see that being a, a, an issue. Wow. It's like you guys have been asked that question before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You guys did a really good. good answer. I like, I like um, to pretend I'm an economist. Yeah. <laughs> and a lawyer. Yeah. And, uh, well, let's see how you do it. Overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. So uh, kick it off. Commuter open houses. Overrated, I think. They're like Thursday night open I'm houses. With yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with yeah. you. Overrated, not affect, wait till Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Gen- generally, the weekend open houses have been much well, much more well traffic. Saturday open houses actually been pretty good too, though. Saturday yep. and/or Sunday. Football season, right? Yeah. Yeah. Football season can can reduce some crowds. About um, VR tour, you know, you know, we were talking about investing in different marketing strategies, so like VR tours or Matterport, that sort of thing. Underrated. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. Huge. How about transit oriented development? Underrated. Drone yeah. photography. About even, what's the middle ground? Even appropriately, appropriately rated. rated. Yeah. Is it allowed on MLS? I had heard that it's not at some point. Really? So, I haven't heard myth? that. No, I mean, yeah. I like spreading rumors on a podcast. <laughs> Good you rumor. have to have a license and you have to so, not be you, within you, an to, airport. Yeah, exactly. To actually, you know, if you're... Kind of hard in Boston. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's location difficulties and, you know, FAA regulations. And you've got to make sure you've got appropriate clearances and all that stuff for someone doing the photography. But I think, you know, in the right circumstances, the right property can be very useful. Micro units. Overrated. Overrated, for sure. Have you sold any or rented any? Well, we've certainly rented units that would that could be defined as micro units. <laughs> we don't market them like that, though, frankly. I don't, yeah. I don't think they sell as well. Instagram marketing. Uh, overrated. Or just social media marketing and general. Social media. Overrated if done by, without expertise. Underrated if done well and thought about. Figawi. That's for you, Mike. <laughs> Underrated? Yeah. Come on, obviously. Can, can we Figawi at 25 or Figawi at 41? It's like the Halloween question. <laughs> yeah, Figawi sailing. Yeah. Not for the clowns that go to the party. Excuse all the clowns out <laughs> uh, there like Mark. Oh, <laughs> oh, can, we, can we explain what we Figawi go. is? Because I have no idea. It's, it's a boat race, for lack of a... Yeah, Fagawi is a race. It started as a sailboat race from uh, Hyannis to Nantucket. Is then morphed into a giant sort of island-wide party. However, it's still a 
you know, a, a classic fun sail race hmm. with lots of partying. All right, last one, last round. MLS rules and regulations. Appropriately rated. I feel like there's a billion of them. I mean, it's a service. What do you, I mean, you know, like any service, it has to have rules and regulations to, to exist, right? I mean, I could nitpick individual rules one way or the other, but overall, I think yeah. it's sure fine. Simple. How about doorman buildings? Fairly rated. Appropriately rated. Appropriately rated, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do people pay premiums for that stuff? Yeah. I mean, you see the premium in the market, so both in the pricing and in the, and, yeah. and in the monthly fees, for sure. Yeah. So pe- some people who want that level of service, very appropriately rated. For people who don't, it's probably uh, overrated. Are they hard to find, though, in Boston, just because of size and cost and... I don't. I don't Management. think. I don't think they're hard to find. There are there are many many buildings who are sort of full service doorman buildings. You know, both on the condo side and even on the on the multifamily sort of rental side. But there's also a lot of buildings uh, in smaller scales like brownstones that are you know filled throughout the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. you get both. Yeah. PT Mike, thanks for joining us today in the studio, and uh, everybody, thanks for listening. If our listeners want to get in touch with you, how do they do it? Well, you can catch us at charlesgaterealty.com or on Instagram at charlesgaterealtygroup uh, or at mdemela for myself. And I'm at PT Weinberg. And thank you, guys. This was awesome. Yeah, super. Was good. Thanks, thank everyone, you. for listening, for sharing. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye now.